Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the third week of Lent. How's uh, that fish on Fridays going for everybody? <laughs> so uh, this Friday in my house, we celebrated my mother-in-law's birthday. And after blowing out the candles, we uh, rubbed ashes on our foreheads, of course. Now, of course, you know that I'm kidding because we use different symbolism for different yearly commemorations, right? Actually, on my 40th birthday, which was a month ago, I did a cross comparison of my age and my time, and I discovered a conflict. Looking in the mirror at my age, I found some things have changed. Meanwhile, looking at my daily routine or my time, I saw that things stayed the same. Besides family, work, and church, all I do is watch the news. And that's been for a decade now, but the news medium has changed. I always get news from a source known by initials. Currently, I watch MSNBC, balanced by the BBC occasionally. And before that, it was CNN. And prior to that, <clears throat> it was TMZ. Now, the problem with TMZ is that they aren't known for covering the news per se, but rather the bad news. Now, I haven't uh, visited their website in a decade, so naturally I use them as source material when researching this sermon because the Lord moves in mysterious ways. And I came across an interesting story there that I had never heard. It was about Retina, an important Los Angeles street artist that I follow. His uh, Salvadorian, Black, and Cherokee heritage gave him an eclectic perspective as he began his career in the 90s graffiti scene in Koreatown. The article stated that Retina vandalized the West Hollywood art gallery with graffiti after he was excluded from a show. I researched and discovered that this was one of two news articles about two separate times that this creative sign maker raised a stink at an opening. The TMZ one from 2018 about the one-man riot was the second one. However, an art website in 2015 asked if a similar event three years earlier was all done symbolically as a kind of performance art. And this would be unusual because Retina is known as a painter, not a performer. But keep in mind that both reports are within the career of an enigmatic artist known for painting mysterious symbols. My experience with Retina and his art began with a sign. I was delivering my artwork for a group exhibition at an art space, and I don't say art gallery because it was a bit more underground. It was my friend's nighttime art show slash dance party at a warehouse in a sketchy neighborhood. The only sign on the front was an ad for renting the building. And I wasn't told how to find it by name on the front, but rather a mural on the side. And the mural that was showing was a collaboration where Elmac painted the sombrero foreground figure and Retina decorated the background with abstract signals. And just like uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics, the recognizable foreground figure was interpreted by the mysterious symbols behind it. And therein lies the mystery because Retina's patterns were not abstractions at all but they were a system of signs. Then I remembered from college that a sign is expressed with a signifier. 
The repeated lines, circles, and tildes took me back to what I learned as an art student. There was something reminiscent of the fami familiar forms in this unfamiliar pattern. The professor had taught us about Ferdinand de Saussure's theory of semiotics, and that's a big word for the study of signs as symbols. Semiotics says that a sign equals the combination of a signifier and the thing that it signifies. Or you could say that a sign is a symbol that stands for an idea, and that idea is represented with a word or a sound. That's how the symbols like uh, the alphabet work. Now, the fellow art majors in here know that I gave a horrible explanation of that theory, but that C plus grade comprehension helped me recognize retina's elusive symbols as signs that represented something more. They are a DIY alphabet of sorts that can be used to communicate. Now, Sassur may have taught us about the relationship between a signifier and the idea signified, but a random Twitter user taught me which letters retina symbols represented. Once I found this Rosetta Stone, I could use the sign maker system. And before it had been a secret code in public places, but now I possess a decoder ring. And I made the opening slide that you saw by piecing together retina signs for the letters S, I, G, and N. So I made a sign out of signs. Then I wondered if I could use that same method to, to decode his you know, mysteriously violent behavior in the gallery, or if I would have to rely on the award-winning journalism of TMZ. Now, I didn't come here this morning to talk about the news, but rather to proclaim the good news. Today's reading from the good news according to John places us in the temple with Jesus, the sign maker. We find him surrounded by signs and mysterious symbols. If only we know how to read them. In these signs, aesthetics met homiletics when Jesus used visual cues to preach a sermon. John 2, 13 through 25 is one of two separate good news stories about two separate times that this creative sign maker raised a ruckus. In the second story in the Synoptic Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see Jesus making a scene in the temple of Jerusalem at the end of his ministry. But in the first story in our Gospel of John, we are shown him causing calamity in the same place at the beginning of his ministry. And like with retina, these uproars were about three years apart and the second story asks if it was all done as a symbolic performance. Remind you that this was all in the overall narrative of a figure known for his use of mysterious symbols. Jesus' use of symbolism, metaphors, and abstractions was not just in his parables, per se. He followed in the uh, tradition of the prophetic pre uh, predecessors before him. And like Retina, the street artist, Jesus, the street preacher, used mysterious, familiar, and referential signs like Ezekiel, Jonah, and Moses. And if we piece it all together, we see that his signs were made of signs. 
the story of Jesus's cleansing of the temple with its signs, signifiers, and the signified ideas help decode the message of the gospel as a whole. When we as viewers look at John 2, 13 through 17, we find ourselves looking at red letters hidden in a blue composition. And I say red letters because if you own one of those old family leather-bound Bibles with a placeholder ribbon, Christ's words appear in red ink. I say it's a blue composition because if you have taken ownership of Jesus's call to be a peacemaker, then a depiction of him appearing violent may give you the blues. But that may be because we are focusing on the individual words, but missing the big picture. As Jesus was moving about in the temple, pushing furniture and waving a whip, he was engaging in a sacred dance of memories. Jesus revisited the collective memory of Judaism encapsulated in its sacred scripture. His mysterious actions were signs. And these signs pointed to the past and the past pictured the future. And at this point, we are introduced to the actions of a sign maker. It all begins with a sign. The image sprayed against the pale limestone walls of Jerusalem is a mysterious one. In the contrasting red words and blue backdrop, these two types of texts meet when Jesus cries out, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise while calling out a clash between the center of worship becoming a commerce center, Jesus stood holding a whip of woven ropes above overturned tables. And the watchful eye of the keen reader may strain at the seeming conflict between Jesus's reputation as a peacemaker and his role here as a troublemaker. Jesus's disciples immediately resolved that conflict with a reference to the Psalms and attributed Jesus' actions to a type of religious zealotry. But of course, the sign is expressed in a signifier. As I mentioned and become more familiar with this story, I'm not so sure that the writer here understands what happened in the temple in the same way that the disciples understood it. And neither should we. There was a tradition of certain prophets of old to use physical actions and props to communicate prophetic signs. The theological ideas that were later signified in the signifier of the written books were first acted out as signs. We can view their mysterious symbolic or controversial actions as an ancient type of performance art. Remember that a signifier is an idea that is being signified. And maybe instead of the psalmist, the evangelist of the gospel was referencing the book of Ezekiel. His imagery conjures the pictures of Ezekiel, the exiled prophet in Babylon who prophesied against the temple of Jerusalem. Additionally, he was a priest and heir to a lineage of Levites who served in the first temple. And Ezekiel's problem was the contrast between the temple priest's public worship of God and private worship of idols. And unlike Jesus, he didn't start by crying out, take these things away, because Ezekiel didn't lead with words. 
Rather, the prophet called out corruption with his actions. He prophesied with sign acts. Once he bound himself with ropes to represent Jerusalem's coming siege. It was parallel to Jesus binding ropes together as a whip for a similar prophecy. A close reading of both prophets who refer to themselves as the son of man reveals Jesus used prophetic history to speak to his problematic present. The second temple that Jesus ransacked was built due to the first destruction foretold by Ezekiel. Now, maybe there is a method to Jesus' actions and words that sometimes seem confusing or contradictory. Maybe we, as Jesus' contemporary disciples, should resolve the of his role as a peacemaker and troublemaker by attributing Jesus' actions not only to protests, but to prophecy. I believe that by stepping into the shoes of the earlier prophet, Jesus was saying what Ezekiel said. Jesus believed that judgment was once again on the temple. Jesus looked at the events composed by his contemporaries and sensed a familiar composition. Even the most earnest of them followed the words of scripture, but missed the big picture. They were following the letter of the law, but not the spirit. This error by those with the best intentions made for an opportunity for those with the worst. The corruption of worship and oppression of the poor was its own form of idolatry. And in a nod to our own cultural proverbs, those who didn't learn from history were bound to repeat it. Now, when we as listeners hear John 2, 18 through 22, we discover that the bottom line is red. The red words of the sign maker find themselves hidden under the overwhelming weight of symbols. They are dark symbols that simultaneously conceal and outline the message of the red words. They are signs that deal with the stark realities of life, death, and life after death. Though Jesus has only one line of a few words in the middle of this section, they serve as the bottom line and final word concerning on the finality of death. It is where we glimpse the life of a sign maker. The second part also surrounds Jesus' use of mysterious signs and Onlookers looked at his confusing and violent actions and asked for an explanatory sign. It seems innocent enough in John, but the dark intentions of Jesus' inquisitors are clearer in the synoptic gospels. When they picture similar challenges for a sign, it is always from the Pharisees. John pictures it as coming from non-specific Jewish worshipers. Jesus follows in the tradition here of a Jewish prophet in conflict with the general Jewish populace. When asked for a sign justifying his antics, Jesus ruffles more feathers. He appears to promise to rebuild the temple in three days after its destruction. But the author reveals to us that he wasn't speaking of the fallen walls of the temple, but his own broken body and spilled blood. Buried under the dark abyss of death, 
there was still hope in his red blood. And even here, the sign is expressed with a signifier. In studying the biblical use of signs, I found prophets who use more than actions to communicate. There's an older tradition of prophets who use their physical life as a prop to communicate signs. When the Synoptic Gospels share sign challenge stories of Jesus and Jesus references his life, death, and resurrection, he calls it the sign of Jonah. So between Jesus and his detractors, we are given a masterclass on how signs and signifiers were understood in biblical times. It invites us to look further into a symbolic and controversial story of Jonah. The signifier of Jesus' words is an idea from Jonah. Jesus' sign of his own death references the literal life of Jonah. And after the prophet Jonah abode in the dark interior of the great fish's belly three days, he was expelled to preach judgment upon the Assyrian Empire's city of Nineveh. When the heathen city repented, we are reminded that whenever Jewish prophets acted out as agents of mercy on Gentiles, it was usually as a judgment against Israel. These heathen Ninevites would do what Jonah's fellow believers in Jerusalem would not do. Now it is clearer why Jonah was reluctant to preach to his Gentile oppressors. He understood the tradition of Jewish prophets in conflict with the Jewish populace. He understood the judgment warning that Nineveh hearkened to was similar to Ezekiel's message that Jerusalem would not hear. It was a message that Jesus signified in a rebuilt temple that would soon be destroyed by Gentile imperialists. That same Jesus who would arise from the dark interior of the great tomb after three days. And I believe that by walking in the life experience of the earlier prophet, Jesus was saying what Jonah said. Jesus proclaimed that judgment was once again on a capital city. But unlike Jonah, this city was Nineveh. Sadly, it was Jerusalem. It was a town known as the city of David, but Jesus mourned it as a killer of prophets. It was home to the temple built by David's son, but it would murder this new son of David. But remember that as deep as the darkness went, the bottom line was red. When the seed of David lay in the ground for three days, his red blood served as a seed of a new temple. That temple sprang forth from the soil anew. That temple rose from the earth and ascended to the heavens. Now that temple provides shade from judgment for both Jews and Gentiles, Jerusalemites and Ninevites. And when we as believers observe John 2, 23 through 25, we see that the initial rise of the story has concluded. Often the reading is preached until the zenith at verse 22, but the lectionary continues three more verses, downhill to a denouement. And it is absent of red words, but features signs reminiscent of the golden era of Judaism. This image-rich thematic device brings us full circle 
from the heavens to earth. And it starts and ends at Passover, where we understand the power of signs. It all ends with a sign because that's where it all began. And the final mystery can be seen far from the temple's golden menorah, where the shine of Jesus' faith in humanity had grown dull. As the priests lit the seven branches of the candelabra, many of the Jews celebrating the eight days of Passover came to believe in Jesus' life. Now they understood it as a message that came down from heaven to earth. As they celebrated the Passover lamb, some believed Jesus to be a new kind of Moses. This illumination, of course, came by the powerful signs he performed. Yet their faith in Jesus' signs and wonders led to his doubt in them. For Jesus knew the history of prophets, people, and signs. Jesus found it signified in the signs of the times. He studied the stories of past sign makers and the dramatic irony was not lost on him. Following the tradition of prophets who use signs, Jesus found the story of the first sign maker, Moses. He didn't only speak with his actions or his life, but also with miraculous power. Now, sure, God enabled Abraham to pray for Pharaoh's healing, but Moses was the first person giving miracle power as a signifier of God's message. When Jesus looked at the whole story of Moses, he found it to be a sign of himself. The gospel shows that Jesus understood that his story was referential to the story of Moses. And maybe he knew that behind the signifier is a signified idea. And the gospel of Matthew is structured around Jesus' five big speeches, like Moses' five big books. But the gospel of John is shaped around Jesus' seven signs. They are called miracles because they are signs of power in the tradition of Moses. But Jesus followed the story beyond the glow of the Exodus to the tabernacle in the wilderness, where Moses' faith in the Israelites dimmed. As he established the law, priesthood, and the rituals of the tabernacle worship, the Jews believed in Moses' signs beginning from Passover. His message had come down from heaven like the manna they ate, yet that did not stop Israel's grumbling and disobedience on earth. The prophet's Passover lamb was met with the people's golden calf. Moses' miracles didn't lead that generation from rebellion. Moses wasn't just interested in faith, but followers. Moses began the tradition of God's messenger finding himself in conflict with God's people. And that conflict led to the judgment of a generation that would not enter the promised land. Their belief in his signs only highlighted the rejection of his words. Their faith in him led to his doubt in them. So Jesus saw himself as the new Moses inside a new kind of tabernacle, but with the same people problems. And I believe that by following the footsteps of the earlier prophet, Jesus was saying what Moses said. Jesus prophesied that judgment was once again on a generation. And in a religious genre that can sometimes seem anti-Semitic, 
in its condemnation of the Jews, our reading here reminds us of the very Jewish tradition that Jesus followed. Like his forerunner prophets, Jesus' judgment was not against all Jews because Jesus' family and all of his converts almost were Jewish. He usually avoided preaching the Gentiles. Like Moses, his judgment was against his generation. Even more, it is specifically against the religious and political leadership of his generation. It is they who saw the signs from God, but did not obey Jesus, the word of God. Now, bring us full circle. A few years have passed and I can confirm that Retina hasn't made it back into the bad news. But even worse, he made it into restoration hardware. Besides corporate collaborations, Retina still does gallery shows. After all, it's better to have his paintings inside the gallery than to have his vandalism outside the gallery. And I saw a show of his with some 3D versions of his 2D designs. For example, his letter T symbol is a large cruciform structure dripping with crimson paint. And this cross stained with the color of blood reminded me that while retina stayed out of the bad news, we bearers of the good news have not. What do I mean by this? Well, two months ago, I watched the US Capitol insurrection on the news and it was filled with signs of the cross, be it with big wooden crosses or Christian flags, Christians made signs and made the news. These sign makers were rioting in the temple of democracy, but they were not imitating Christ. Will viewers remember their violence and see terrorism signified every time they view the cross? Well, I'm old enough to remember how we treated our Muslim neighbors after September 11th. And I seem to remember Jesus saying, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. If you were disturbed on January 6th, like I was, then we must stand in the shoes of the prophets of old, delivering God's message to his disobedient children. Like Jesus, if we choose to follow the prophetic path, it will send a signal to our misguided siblings. Their signs of Christian nationalism force us to decide if we will be signifiers of Christianity or Christendom. Will we preach the good news or the bad news? And I believe the best way to condemn these new counterfeits is to cling to the old rugged cross. When we make the sign of the cross with our actions, it is Ezekiel's judgment on our temples when they are the center of, of misguided worship and corrupt religion. It prophetically signifies the self-sacrificing actions of Jesus as our new temple. And when we make the sign of the cross with our lives, it is Jonah's judgment on the cities of empires, when the powerful co-opt religion as a tool for political coup. It prophetically signifies the kingdom of God is beyond the power of death and borders.
And when we make the sign of the cross with our power, it is Moses's judgment on a generation when the children of God become the children of disobedience. It prophetically signifies the power of the Holy Ghost to birth a new generation who forsakes worldly power. Now, some of you may see me as pontificating on this matter and think, well, that's because he's 40 now and uh, those grumpy old man tendencies are seeping out. And others of you may be wondering how I preach an entire sermon about the sign without making one Ace of Base reference. That later uh, group is the 40 and up crowd. My problem is not in my age, but our age. We live in an age where the prophetic words of Christ clash with the actions of Christians. And in this age, many believe in the idea of Christ, but not the ideas of Christ. In this age, people hold fast to a faith in heaven while making hell for others on earth. How can a Christian have true faith in the cross of Christ without following what it signifies? The Bible tells me that the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Yet now is not the time to abandon the sign of the cross, but to cleave closer to its true content. We must do a cross comparison of the conflict between our age in our time. God's judgment may be upon this age, but God's promise is in this time. This age may be far from the Lord, but this time is lent. This is the time where faith is expressed in following the crucified Christ to our own Calvary. This is the time to repent in ashes and perform our private faith in public spaces. Lent is a time that we consider the significance of God's actions, life, and power, and sign ourselves in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.